0: Greetings, Alexa. I'm coming to you today. I'm, I'm playing my little remote uh, traveling Wilburys type of uh, podcast journey here, but I'm coming yes. to you. I'm coming to you from the Brown Cup Cafe in Oceanside, California, which is a, which is a great place for live music and readings um, and a wonderful coffee house where I have uh, written many words myself. So anyways, um, and uh, today today we have as our guest David Reed, who has written a fantastic memoir, Uphill Absolutely. and into the Wind. And Uphill and into the Wind recounts a journey, an odyssey that spans 5,420 miles on bicycles, 5,400 miles on bikes. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm a marathon runner, but that's extreme. Um,
1: quite, the, quite the adventure, I would say.
0: <laughs> it chronicles sudden and surprising glories of nature, the raw beauty of the land and the majesty of the mountains. So it ties nature in with their experience. Through it all, uh, David and his friends Rusty and Susie are, are changed forever in ways they did not expect by a long journey into the unknown. Um, and, we're, and, and we'd are and we like to um, now welcome David Reed, who's going to start off by reading a couple of uh, pages from the book. Hi, David.
2: Hi, thanks for uh, having me today. Yes, oh, we're welcome. happy,
1: to have, so have happy a, to have you.
2: So this is a little snippet from early in the trip. As we're rounding a long hilltop on the highway, there's a large Doberman pincher chained up to our right, perhaps 70 yards from the road, who goes absolutely berserk at the sight of us, barking and straining at his steel tether. Somehow bicycles provoke dogs and this one is completely unhinged. I had one too many scary encounters with Dobermans as a child, usually from the other side of a chain link fence. With their partly severed ears pointing sharply upward, They are Gestapo-like and (laughs) vicious-looking, high-strung and bred to attack strangers. Twice, this one lunges so forcefully that the chain goes taut and his body flies out underneath him, snapping to rigid tension while his neck stays chained tightly to the post, choking him and dropping to the ground. What agony. I'm bringing up the rear and have a good vantage point to observe all this. The third time he lunges, The chain snaps. Realizing he's free, he scrambles to his feet, now in full froth and attack mode. My pace quickens, but I haven't reached the crest of the hill yet. I yell up to Rusty. He broke the chain. Get moving. Thankfully, this time Susie is well ahead. The top of this black and brown bullet streaks toward us just above the tall grass. He's moving fast enough, fast, fast enough to catch me. I'm slowly accelerating, gaining on Rusty who's cranking fiercely as the mad dog closes in. 40 yards, then 30, 20. Oh my God, he's only a few yards behind me bent on blood. His eyes focused on me and his biting teeth show from underneath snarling foaming lips. I'm standing on the pedals giving it all I've got but he's so close I can hear his lungs bellow and his claws on the pavement. Finally, we crest the hill. The maniacal dog is only a few feet behind me, but my 50 pounds of gear has now become an advantage and my speed increases. Pulling away from him, my terror begins to subside as the angry beast gets smaller and smaller. Hmm. The three of us must be doing 35 miles an hour by now. Once we're out running him, we don't look back for a while, but when we do, he's still there unrelenting. (laughs) My heart is pounding. He chases us for over a mile before giving up. Dog encounter number one.
1: A narrow escape, I'm, I have to say. <laughs>
2: yeah, I'm never running on an open
0: road again.
1: <laughs> no kidding. You know, yeah.
0: it, it's, it's funny because one of the things about memoirs, besides sharing the journey, mm-hmm. the, you know, reading the writer's journey and, and participating in that journey through the words, which this book makes it very easy to do is it also, it also invokes memories of our own that are related mm-hmm. to what the book's talking about. So when you read that, I was thinking of <laughs> when I was marathon training in New Hampshire in the White Mountains in 2004, and I was at the end of a, a 20 mile run going up a hill. So in other words, very tired. And all of a sudden, this, uh, this um, um, Tibetan Mastiff made a run for me from this farm across the way just a straight run. And there was nothing I could do because I was too tired really to defend myself. And he crosses the street. And as he's running, as he's racing across the street, just looking right at my legs, um, a van came and hit it. Oh, it took out the, it took out the dog. The dog was so mean that it got caught up in the undercarriage. And when the van finally it came out the back end, it just got up and ran away. Wow. Yeah. And I mean, if it wasn't for that van, you know,
1: Oh right, that's dogs. Yeah, no, no, that
0: um, I was hoping <laughs> you'd. I was hoping you'd read the Doberman scene because that's one of my favorite scenes in your book. Um, yeah, and that was so, so
1: poetically written as well. I mean, it really yeah. just portrayed everything that happened. You feel like you're really there. So, and one thing that I saw when I was, you know, researching your book and even reading some segments myself was that a lot of people had commented on that. So that was just like the perfect scene, Bob. I agree with you.
0: Yeah. Um, so, David, you you write you you write about a journey that. Uh, took place in 1973-74, that mm-hmm. era, and um, you wrote about it recently. What was it like to go that far back in time and relive one of the monumental experiences of your life um, in yourself and, and then to write it?
2: Well, fortunately, I had journals, seven mm-hmm. journals from that year. <laughs> okay. Nice. That's where the so, memory wrote, is. Okay. wrote every day. <laughs> Some of these were quite hard to transcribe, um, but to relive it, uh, you know, took me deeper and deeper into every day on this. And you know, mm-hmm. when you start to remember things, there's more and more that you remember. So it was it was a it was a thrilling experience to do that. Okay. Um, and so when you
0: when you set about going at you, your memoirs, you know, like a real like like a good memoir, it's layered with different things. It's a personal story. It's the mm-hmm. story of the land in the, at that time. It's a story that challenges you all, and the and the exhilaration you all experienced on your journey. Um, when you when you set out to write this, what were you hoping to accomplish, and what how did it
2: come out? So, <clears throat> um, when my dad passed away, he lived a good long life, and he had written a 13-page memoir. It didn't, mm. you know, it was just in a file, and it was about something he did that helped change world war ii which was very cool and i thought i have to write my story so i started writing i got about 50 pages in and i went
3: ah
2: it's the bike journals um so anyway so that's kind of how it started um when i you know I, i just knew it had to it was a story that had to be told so once i got going and i got encouragement from my friends rusty and susie of course once i got going um it became, you know, it, it just became bigger than me. So that, that's very exciting, too.
1: So when, yeah. when, when transcribing this from some of these journals, um, I mean, did you just kind of write these events as they came or did you sequence and like drop a specific timeline for how each event unfolded, I guess?
2: Well, the good news, Alexa, is that the, the journals were contemporaneous.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay. So,
2: you know, I'd write every day or if I didn't write every day, you know, the minute I had a chance to catch up, I would. so when i transcribed them which i did by the way on a with a boom mic on dragon dictate and it was oh wow yeah it was quite flawless um you know the storyline was a through story um Mm -hmm. there's there's only one flashback in the book it's at the beginning um and and um i guess that was that was the easy part for me um you know, when normally we, for instance, talk about fiction writers or, you know, anybody, even um, Julie Moss's book, um, mm, yes. you know, you're putting stuff together and you you know, there's all this arranging that's going on. I didn't have to worry as much about that. Mm-hmm. I had a through, what happened though is of course, is that pieces were taken out after a while. I started out with four, 415 pages.
1: Oh wow! And okay,
2: I ended up with
0: 315. So well, that's that's how books become great. You distill them. True. So yeah, <laughs> that is
1: kind of a convenience for you. You can really focus on the more creative aspect instead of having to, um, you know, recount each event and try and make sure it's as accurate as possible. And I feel like a lot of people, a lot of authors that write memoirs, um, typically have to focus on, you know, looking back and haven't journaled everything like you have. So that's definitely a, a convenience, as I said. So.
0: So tell us, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm a few years younger than you, but I also very had a very great experience through, the, you know, just living through the 70s. I mean, what a decade.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, tell us a little bit about what, um, you know, just tell us a little bit about just being in the uh, 70s on this journey and some of the things you experienced going cross country as far as, you know, strangers, you know, people you don't know offering food, staying at people's houses, mm-hmm. things like that, that
2: today would be considered, you know, extreme. Right. Well, first of all, you have to remember, um, it was a very difficult time. I mean, I lived through uh, Vietnam. I had two, my two best mm-hmm. friends went there. One of them, you know, Tommy came back in a body bag. Mm-hmm. Um, then there was Kent State. And uh, that was very traumatic for me because I had a close friend who, was a, um, who had gone there. Uh, and I was very disenchanted with the politics of the time. We had two crooks in the White House. Both of them got kicked out. Um, So and and we were, you know, we were uh, the counterculture at the time. We were hippies. Mm -hmm. Uh, Look at the book cover. I don't know if you could tell, but I had a ponytail and a beard. (laughs) And um, and there was some, uh, you know, they called them hippies, you know, people. There were some people who uh, didn't like the counterculture. Uh, but when we set out on the road, you know, that sort of all dropped away in our consciousness. And we were riding along and we came upon people and places. And I have to tell you, there were Good Samaritans everywhere we went. We had very few um, encounters that weren't wonderful. Uh, <clears throat> people opened up their hearts and their homes to us, they offered us meals and showers. Uh, whenever we encountered them. We, you know, we spent a lot of time in the open land too. So, um, mm-hmm. you know, but we, we always encountered friendly people. And that was one of the great things that gives me uh, hope in America that, you know, people are good everywhere. Mm-hmm. And you just have to kind of meet them on their level. So that was, that was really a, a wonderful thing for us. Yeah, and then tell us
0: a little bit about how you prepared for this journey. I mean, you went 5,420 miles on a bike, uh, that's not easy to do. Um, Just tell us a little bit about how you got ready, how you and your friends got ready, and then just,
2: um, yeah, and just about some of the best days of your ride. So I had been, uh, after I graduated from college um, in landscape architecture, I had gone to work for a stonemason and it was grueling work, physical work, every footing that we dug had to be below frost line and we dug them all by hand so it was grueling physical labor and i was in very good shape and i would um come home after work and go out and ride 20 miles just to get my to clear my head out Mm -hmm. it was you know it was really great therapy and um so then when this trip came up you know the the idea of this and, and by the way i read an article in National Geographic in 1973 about four people who rode their bicycles from Anchorage, Alaska to Missoula, Montana. Huh. Mm. They were the inspiration for me. Hmm. I said, I could do this. A Bicycle takes you anywhere. When I met with Rusty and Susie and you know, we became friends, I didn't know them before the trip. Um, Rusty and I uh, prepared a bunch. Uh, we tried, we got Susie. Susie didn't even know how to ride a 10 speed when we started. Oh, wow. And, um, <clears throat> excuse me when um, we went out on a training ride in uh, I think it was February and this is in the winter back in northern New Jersey and uh, we hit a patch of black ice and Susie wiped out and after that we couldn't get much uh, uh, participation from Susie on riding and I mean she was hurt but not too badly mm-hmm. um, so Susie didn't prepare as much but one of the things about it is when you get on the road um you, you know, you start pedaling and after a week or two, you're seasoned, <laughs> there's no question about it. Um, so, and, and, you know, the first, um, the first hill we had was really a mountain oh, and there was some walking on that one, but, um, which is in the story, but, uh, yeah, we got, we were seasoned and by the time we got to the Rockies, uh, nothing could stop us. So
1: that's interesting. I was going to kind of ask also, like, what's the mindset that a cyclist must maintain when traveling, you know, in such harsh conditions. I mean, is the, the adventure and scenery itself something that keeps you going the thrill of it or just the, the motivating factor of, you know, in the sense of accomplishment, so to speak.
2: Well, for me, um, you, I was educated in landscape architecture and I, this right. natural science. You mm-hmm. study the land, the flora and the fauna. Mm-hmm. And so the land for me was, um, such a wonderful element. We started in spring. In fact, you know, there was a snowstorm uh, only about ten days before we left on our trip. <laughs> and uh, so then, when spring came, it was absolutely glorious. We hit the Appalachians in spring, and and so those the the, the rapture of spring uh, is something that fills you. And you're outside all the time. The other thing, which um, uh, Robert, you can relate to as a marathoner, is that long distance runners after an hour or so your brain waves have changed you've entered theta state yes a mm. very primal state of being um and it's and and we were in we did that all day long every day so we were in this primal state and that changed our consciousness uh and i think the natural settings became more and more glorious as we went you know you become one mm-hmm. with the land you're riding through it You know, we started to experience the land in ways we didn't know were possible.
1: So you were able to kind of look at things through a different lens when you got into that that state. Okay. Yeah, and that really
2: changed, I I think, all of us forever. Yeah, you um,
0: you kind of took my question out of my mouth, but um, yeah, I was going to mention that. And and to your writing itself, the way you wrote this is really beautiful. Mm -hmm. But there's this arc through there's this arc showing. When your minds went to theta state, and also, and just, just, you can just see it in the writing how, what you see and what you experience inside and out, um, your interactions with others, it 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 perceptibly changes as the book continues, um, and I just I just thought that was a really beautiful bit of writing because that's not easy to do. It is really hard. It is really hard to continue to show evolving mind state, uh, or um, evolving mindset yeah. as you're going through a story. Um, so, um, I'm really glad that you put that in the book That because like you said, whether it's marathon running or ultra running or cycling, um, that you just peel away layers of
2: yourself and you're just left, you know, left more and more pure, essentially. That's exactly right. Yeah. Primal state. And, you know, our intuitions became more powerful mm-hmm. and sure. that's, that's sure. what happened. You, you, know, If you think of all the erratic thoughts you have, you know, the channel switching in your brain, mm-hmm. it's all gone away. And then by that time, you're very intuitive. So I have an interesting question, I think. How did
0: your, uh, at that time it was a degree in landscape architecture, obviously became a career landscape architect later, but how did your degree and the knowledge you had in landscape architecture at the time, how did that help you in, planning routes and, um, and, and just re- your relationship with the land as you went across country?
2: So <clears throat> we, we knew that we would have to head south to start with for two reasons. One yeah. is that it's warmer sooner. Sure. Um, the other is that if you look at Pennsylvania and this, this goes to my knowledge of geography, geology, there's about 400 miles of ridge and valley. It just goes like this. You can see it in, from space. And we thought we (laughs) we don't want to subject ourselves to that. (laughs) I understand. Uh, So, but but otherwise, in planning the journey, um, we kept it open score. We wanted to see the national parks. Mm. That was the big draw for us. So you know that's why Shenandoah National Park was the first one we hit, and we hit many. But those were our those were our real plans. We wanted to see them, and of course, because I'd studied land and flora and fauna. Um, you know, I knew a little bit about them, but as we as we experience them, you learn more, you become intimate with them. There's a scene in the book um, on the top of Hawksbill Mountain, it's the highest peak in yes. The yes. And it was so quiet, you could hear the insects buzzing below. Um, and all of a sudden there was there were these thousands, maybe tens of thousands of butterflies in migration. Mm. wow i didn't know this was possible you know Mm
1: -hmm.
2: and again i was strong in in the fauna but and if there were only a few we never would have seen them they were out in space below us and there were swallowtails in there too which is curious to me because you know monarchs are orange and black swallowtails Mm -hmm. are yellow and black but there were so many in these skeins and they were flitting through space and we just we just watched them for several minutes until they disappeared, and that's one of those magic moments. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, unless you're out there, unless you're out on the land, uh, you don't experience those things. You have to spend time with the land to experience them. And, and that was just one of the many encounters. Yeah, and, and I would go on to say that you know this was you know this was written
0: uh, in the 1973-74 time period. So I would I would venture to say that. Uh, you know, due to, due to climate change, environmental changes, hmm. and so forth, a lot of, some of the things you saw, you'll, you'll we'll never see again, such as th- tens of thousands of butterflies
2: migrating.
1: Unfortunately, that's,
2: I mean, I, I don't even know if you even see that anymore. I don't know, but I, I, I have learned about you know, the Eastern monarchs migrate from Mexico, hmm. the Western ones migrate up and down the coast. But some of the things, <clears throat> excuse me, Robert, they mentioned um, on the top of that very mountain. Just, you know, because of acid rain, for instance, the, um, the alpine firs and spruces that were there don't exist anymore. Mm. And one of the, um, I guess the saddest parts of that, we had encountered also in Shenandoah National Park, a stand of hemlocks that were giant and ancient. I, they were the biggest Eastern trees I had ever seen. And I, you know, we used to wander around in the woods and the forest all the time as kids. They had to be easily 100 feet tall and there was a whole grove of them there. And that, there's a, a, a part about that in the book. And um, I, I tried to keep the story in the book without getting distracted. So there are footnotes and you go to the end of the chapter, you can see them. But that stand of hemlocks was destroyed, the hmm. entire stand by a, 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 a little adelgid. It's a tiny little bug that came from overseas somewhere. And, and, and so and, unfortunate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it doesn't exist anymore. And it's—I mean—it was a sacred place. All gone forever. So, um, the you—you you, you, you,
0: you were weaving as I saw three different three lines in your book. Hmm. Um, can you tell us about? Did you write this out chronologically with your journals at your side, or did you write it in
2: in different pieces? No, I read it chronol—I wrote it chronologically. I transcribed the journals verbatim. Yeah. And I have to tell you, like number two, here's somewhere, I think I dropped it on the floor. It was in pen, you know, in the beginning, it was in pencil. And I mean, if you look at this, I don't know if you could see this in the screen. This is so hard to read at one point, (laughs) get a jeweler's loop out. But, But because it was there, that was, so there's some stream of consciousness, but also everyday activity, what we ate, you know, food, it became a big part of, um, it was sort of a daily log, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I read it, wrote it straight through in that sense. But, um, but you know, g- going back, then once you have a, a, a draft, you can start to focus on elements. And, um, yes. you, you know, the more you do that, the more you remember. And then, I, of course, I had help from Rusty and Susie uh, a little bit, although at one point, Rusty said, David, how did you remember all this? Because <laughs> it was written 40 plus years later. Yeah. and it was the journals so that really helped well that's an interesting
0: point because when we when we write memoirs um, you know we're going back in our memory obviously my mm-hmm. name of it virtue to write a, to write this creative nonfiction about a, a aspect of our lives but what I find amazing and I've kept journals since the mid 70s myself um, what I find interesting is I what I think of, about the mid 70s and then recently reading my journal from the mid 70s when i was a senior in high school mm-hmm. um I, I did i think i remember 10 percent of what actually happened and and so I'm, I'm just so i'm really thankful you have your journals because it obviously helped you with this book tremendously and and, and we always, you know, as you've heard in at my presentations at the Southern California Writers' Conferences, I always preach about keeping journals. Mm-hmm. They're, they're the most invaluable thing a writer can have.
2: And have you kept journals all the way through? No, but um, I, I have s- certain things that are similar.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, I've kept, you know, I used to have these Sierra uh, Club engagement calendars, you know, the kind mm-hmm. that you buy right. every year. And I would write stuff in those. And I've kept a bunch of those. I do have other journals that I've kept. And um, I'm also writing now. I've been in a writing group for almost five years. Uh, that's uh, led by Judy Reeves. Yep. Uh, and um, so I'm doing more memoir now. You know, you, it, to be in the group, you have to keep writing. So I'm mm-hmm. continuing to write. and I, I think the thing that works really well for me, and I feel blessed this way, is that I still have a good memory for a lot of things. And the more, again, I can't stress this enough. The more you try to remember and relax with it, the more comes to you. And and plus when you're writing in the stream of consciousness process of writing, it comes to you while you're
0: writing. Yeah,
2: exactly. Yeah. 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 It's really a beautiful thing. So,
0: okay. So we're um, so, so tell us how we can find this book. I know, and I'll talk to you, then I'll
2: ask you a few questions about what you were doing last weekend. Okay, um, and let me. Uh, I want to get if I can get my mouse to work here? There we go. Um, so it's available on the usual places: the big A, uh, Amazon. Mm-hmm. Um, you can get it at Barnes and Noble. I've got it in several local bookstores, mm-hmm. uh, which is great. Um, and um, I also, uh, you can visit my site at uphillandintothewind.com. Um, I'm also on, uh, and again, one of the nice things about Amazon, uh, I I really prefer to encourage um, local booksellers. We need to keep our brick and mortar booksellers. Um, But um, one of the things that's nice about them is you can read all the the reviews and so on and see what people think of it. Um, Vromans in Pasadena has my book. Oh, that's a good That's a good place. Ranch. Uh, and again, several local bookstores. And now that we're coming out of COVID, um, I hope to be, you know, visiting, I've got a list of other bookstores I want to list and get my book in there. Um, it's hard when you're an independently published or a mm-hmm. hybrid publish, uh, to get your books in these big box stores. Uh, they, most of their stuff come from the big five publishers. Right. Um, but, but we're breaking through that, I think. And um, absolutely. so anyway, um, mm-hmm. And I'm available on Facebook and Instagram too, um, at Uphill and Into the Wind and David Reed ASL on Facebook and Instagram at David Reed Writer and at David Reed 1962.
1: Excellent. That's a good bridge into my question. I was gonna ask, um, do you think in this day and age that is really heavily saturated with technology and social media and just instant communication that a memoir like yours may influence others to embark on their own personal journey? You know, people do. of the younger generation, or anything.
2: I do. First mm-hmm. of all, there's a um, what I've seen is the children of our children mm-hmm. seem to have a similar consciousness about the Earth. Right. Uh, maybe even more so. In fact, I would tell you that my oldest son is, um, you know, he's sort of more militant about saving the planet even than we are, mm-hmm. and um, and maybe they realize that you know, the need is greater. right? Um, so uh, I think there a, a lot of them are more interested in getting outside, uh, which is good because there's a lot of, I, didn't, I left my cell phone downstairs, but you know, there's a lot of this in the world right now. People are Absolutely. getting myopic, literally. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> but, I, but I've also been very moved by some of the reactions I've gotten from young people mm-hmm. about the story um, and, and it seems inspirational to them. So that, that's one of the biggest thrills of all for me is that, um, you know, is, is how I've moved other people just because I've written this. And the cool thing for me is, you know, one of the things I told Rusty and Susie when the book was finished, I said, you know, we've committed this to the world now.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: It's out there forever. So um, now I just have to make sure we get a lot, lot lots and lots of people to read
1: it. Absolutely. <laughs> right. Yeah.
2: right. And I feel like...
1: Yeah, I really feel like that people, um, particularly, particularly in my generation, are really thirsting for that, you know, able to be more introspective, you know, when you kind of just set down the cell phone and really just go out in nature as you did and go on that grand adventure, so to speak. So,
0: yeah. Yeah, and that's a really interesting point about our children's children. Um, mm-hmm. I and heard. like I, I was at a robotics, cl- I, w- I was working with some robotics kids at a, a middle school in Carlsbad, California, a couple of years ago. And it just went what this one seventh grade girl said just hit me. And we were talking about climate change, environmental, you know, you know, and and like our kids, baby boomers' kids, sometimes look at and blame, just flat out blame us for what's wrong with the world. They just say, you, you know, you screwed up the world. But they don't offer solution in, in general. But their kids, like this little 13 year this 13 year old girl just said okay you guys screwed it up but we're going to fix it so they're already in Mm -hmm. in solution mode coming out of the womb practically this generation
2: yeah and there is hope we can do this if we're pulled together yeah 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 Um, and i you know i've always said to my kids life isn't in there inside this box you know whether it's the tv or the laptop or the cell phone which seems to be uh prevalent so much it's out life is out there in fact that's right you can't see this but outside my window i have nothing but foliage i mean it's mm. it mm-hmm. grows almost right to the window so i have this this forest bathing right in my study here which is kind of nice mm. um, anyway. so you were um so you
0: were published by acorn publishing out of san diego who we love to work with as well in fact mm-hmm. a, a book that uh i ghost wrote blood money was put out by acorn last year right and um, Acorn recently celebrated quite an anniversary. Their hundredth or commemoration. Their hundredth book was published, and in in accordance with that, they had a big book signing um, weekend before last in San Diego. And you were you were one of the authors. Tell us about that experience,
2: but also tell us about your first ever book signing, which was the day before. Right. So, um, mm-hmm. well, the one before the day before was not as. Um, well attended, but it was exciting to be there in person and coming out of COVID. You know, I had this whole rollout plan for the book before COVID hit. Sure. And it all went out the window. Um, the one at Barnes & Noble, the Acorn event. And Acorn's been just a wonderful um, uh, a- a company to work with. I mean, and the things that I like the most, I was talking with another author the day before at the, uh, at the San Diego Writers event, and she had a great book, but she doesn't own the rights to it. Mm-hmm. and I own all the rights to my book thanks to acorn that's how they work um the event at barnes and noble was pretty exciting there were several authors of acorn that I had not met before
3: mm-hmm.
2: I was um I was a little uh, I'm not a timid guy but I was a little uh what's the word just a little uh circumspect about how crowded it was which was a great thing but you know here we have it. and not everyone was masked but you know yeah. you kind of you bless it and go on right and um <laughs> it was really exciting to uh, be up there and uh christina may fong is the one with the hundredth book uh, under the lavender moon and i made sure i made a point to sit next to her because i think she's great um and uh i got up to read i read a shorter part of that doberman section and, and I, I wanted to keep it short because i knew everyone else was going to go long and I got to the part where the dog spell his lungs are bellowing and his claws are on the pavement. And I just slammed the book shut <laughs> and everybody <laughs> broke into laughter. <laughs> so, um, but it was really exciting. And, you know, having strangers come up and talk to you and want your book and sign mm-hmm. it. And I sold out, of course. And even I had, I had friends that I had friends there, but also friends yeah. that had bought the book who had never got it yeah. signed. And I do have um, for people that have bought the book and want to get it signed that can't reach me personally. I even have a great book plate. Let me see if I can find it. I have to reach for it somewhere. We go. I have this wonderful book plate that's from the first morning of our trip. Oh, wow. Um, oh, so wow. One of the things cool. I did in my journal was um, I, I made these little, I'll call them thumbnail sketches. They were pretty crude. <laughs> and this was one of them. This was the first morning out. There's the as the um the waxing or waning moon waxing coming up in the coming no, up and right. Venus and Jupiter and um at sunrise and i have a little thing that explains that when i send it so people send me a self addressed stamped envelope i've been sending out book plates it's really fun it's kind of like having pen pals you know so
1: yeah, can you discuss a little bit about what led you to to uh, to write the memoir to begin with? I mean, what was kind of the breaking point? Because I, I'm not sure, like whenever you were writing um, in your journal, um, if you thought that possibly one day you would you would ever write write this. Or yeah, that's you know, what such was a the- great
2: question, Alexa. Um, there was a place near the uh, I think it was in the west side of Kansas when we mm-hmm. stopped, and there was this local newspaper. I'll call him a newspaper reporter. You know, he was. I mean, it's a small town. He's just, I'm with the newspaper. Right. And he wanted to know about us and all this stuff. And I, he may mm-hmm. have written something, but he said, you should write a book. And he said, we said, yeah, we'll write a book. And we never thought about it after that. And one of the things I'd like to say is that as young adventurers, you, you, you basically, you don't think about stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's only when you start looking back later in your life. And again, the thing that triggered it for me was my dad's 13-page memoir. Mm-hmm. My dad made the word stoic look like an understatement. <laughs> <laughs> so when I read this thing and it was, you know, on legal in... <laughs> size yellow pad, right. double spaced in Palmer method handwriting. <laughs> um and I just it, that inspired me. I thought, well, I should just write about and I never thought about the bike trips until I got about 50 pages in. So I have all these wonderful, you know, I 50 pages of really good childhood memories written mm-hmm. out. And then uh and then when it hit me, oh, you know, I had all the journals. So that's how it started. Okay. And yep. once, once it did, um, you know, Rusty and Susie were, like, really stoked about it. Mm-hmm. So I've stayed it, in touch with It them. kind
1: of snowballed. You know, he put that idea in your head and it kind of snowballed from there. That's interesting. Right. In, in mm-hmm. fact,
2: um, I had gone back east at one point a few years ago, and, mm-hmm. and we, we had a reunion, Rusty, Susie, and I. And um, I told them, I said, you know, I've been living with you guys every day for the past few <laughs> years. <laughs> So, which is a, which is a very uh, unusual, I, you know, I've never experienced anything like that before, mm-hmm. being so close to your characters in your book. And, you know, I am a debut um, memoirist. This is my first book. Right. I do have others planned, but they're You're not going to come out. You know, some people churn these books out. I don't know how they do it. Uh, although now that I'm semi-retired, I'm, I'm phasing out of landscape architecture. Mm-hmm. Still, I did about 35 hours of work in the last two weeks. So that tells you I'm kind of where yeah, you're phasing out. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> I'm easing out. It's not a it's not a shock. Um and uh and with COVID, we can't do as much traveling as we'd like. So I'm okay. Exactly. This,
3: this way. Yeah.
2: But uh, but I have more writing uh on the table. Are you are you gonna write more memoirs? Are you gonna go into yes, fiction? Uh, yes. Uh, okay. I have sure. um so I'll give you a little a little snippet. I had yeah. a twin sister
3: mm-hmm. She's
2: passed on now. And right. uh, so I had, you know, uh, after, uh, after reading my entire uh, uphill and into the wind book to my reading critique group in five to seven page snippets every other week for two and a half years, I had to write something new. And I started casting about, and I have great twin stories. Mm-hmm. And one of the people in my group said, David, that's your next book. It's about Jackie, yeah. our twin. So, um, Anyway, so I'm continuing to do that. Uh, and, um, and, but, and I also, the other thing I want to do is I have a, a very illustrious family tree. I want to write a historical, I don't know what you would call it, um, but about my family tree. They're in, they're in a lot of books um, and um, I'll get to that.
1: Sounds <laughs> interesting. it sounds, <laughs> interesting. Well, it sounds good, like it, good I, project so what, on the horizon. So yes. I'm not
0: sure about this semi-retirement. It, things, it sounds to me like you're getting into a new career. Second career, yes. Yeah,
1: I'm not sure if that's a retirement so much. (laughs) uh,
0: The the, the career that all of us writers work our regular jobs hoping we ever get to have, you know,
2: (laughs) (laughs) well, I can do it at my leisure and I can, um, you know, I'm an early bird, so I rise early and that's the best time of day to write for me. Yeah, so uh, a good part of our audience is um,
0: aspiring writers Mm -hmm. and, you know, students and people are trying to write what are a few tips as a first-time memoirist who wrote such an incredibly beautiful book that makes it look like you've written five or six books but what what are so i'm not i'm asking you this i normally wouldn't ask this of a first-time author but your book is so good that you you've got this down what are three or four tips that you would give to somebody when when they're
2: preparing to write a memoir so the first one i i remember years ago i went to a it was a school thing. My kids had it. It was at a different school, but there was a big poster up on the uh, or a, you know line thing uh, on the wall, and it said "Write in haste, edit in cold blood." Mm-hmm. Uh, that was very inspirational for me. Also, um, I would say write what you know and mm-hmm. read as much as you write. Um, uh, the other thing for me was that um, you know I spent so little time in the relative sense of the book, doing the first draft that I spent the you know maybe the next six plus years polishing. So wow. and, you know, editing One process. Editing is is really um, important. I think it's really also important for young writers, new writers to um, join a writing community. Absolutely. I did not know anything about the Southern California Writers Conference until I talked to a neighbor who had been published. Mm-hmm. And it was last minute. And she said, you know, try it. They'll let you in at the last minute. And I did. And now I've joined this, uh, the community of the literati. I feel very fortunate to to be there. And then, of course, after that, I met a woman who said, uh, you you know, the Writers' Conference here is 95% fiction. You should go to San Diego Writers, Inc. and, and join a memoir group. And so that's when I met Judy Reeves, and we have a very special group, and uh, that's been great. Yeah, so, and so, I'm sorry. Ahead. And for
0: our for our reader, for our listeners and viewers, Judy Reeves is a superstar in southern in southern California literary mm-hmm. community. Um, as she has between her writing groups and her editing, she's mentored a bunch of us, including myself, years ago, and um, and that and that San Diego writers community is really strong. And of course, it's backbone by The Southern California Writers Conference, and you know, and I remember, I remember visiting with you at the Writers Conference a couple of years ago when you were probably, I'm guessing, at the stage where you're really starting to refine your book and, and get it towards publishing, uh, publishing stage. Um, and but what I remember, remember that you did that I would recommend to anybody is you asked a lot of questions of a lot of people. You didn't just sit on one person and say. You know what's your point? What do you think? And then go with that. You were asked. You, you were learning the business at the same time. You were trying to get mm-hmm. your writing uh, to publishing quality.
2: Yeah, th- and, can, and can thank you, you thank You you know I never forgot the help you gave me. It was one of these. It was a submission, Alexa. So you get to send mm-hmm. ten pages to uh, to an author, and then mm-hmm. they would sit down. They would read it, and sit down, and Robert was the, the guy. Oh, okay. And, uh, and he really helped me with that. And I, and I was struggling for a way to kind of energize the book sooner. And Bob, you really helped me with that. I think um, I think asking questions is really a big mm-hmm. deal. I think, you know, we've always tried to teach our kids to be advocates for themselves. And one way to be an advocate is to learn to get garner information, ask your, ask people what they need and, and ask around. I mean, that's 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 one of the things that the social network community is. Seems to be good at. True. Of course, there's a lot of misinformation there. But if you're if you're one-on-one with people and you can, you can connect with them and get their advice, mm-hmm. especially mentors, people who are like Judy Reeves, mm-hmm. um, you know, people who are uh, highly polished in their field. I think that's great. And, and writing, by the way, for for tips for young people, I think journaling, writing every day. Um, someone asked me, I was, you know, when the eclipse happened uh, a, few, a couple of years back, we went on this trip to Oregon and I was out early in the morning on my laptop and someone asked me if I was a writer. And I said, yes. And then she asked me, she said, do you write every day? And I said, yes. <laughs> and, I mean, that's what it takes. <laughs> that's right. Just do it. Yeah. Just get out there and do it.
1: And kind of building that's that right. ecosystem as well. And having that support system yeah. is very helpful. So so yeah, I was and, curious, uh, um, what, what, what um, types of rituals, or I should say, um, you know, do you get into like, what, what do you do to get into the headspace to sit down and start writing? Exactly. Uh, Not rituals, but you know, if you do uh, that then go, <laughs> sure, so, um, more power to you, but
2: um, well, so, I'm just so, I'm curious. Yeah, that's if, a great question. Um, I read, there's a book by Twyla Tharp. Mm-hmm. She's yes. a famous choreographer and it's yep. called Creative Habit, Learning and used for life. Yes. And this is the first book that m- my child turned me on to my son, when he went to USC huh. and I read, I read it and I was so taken by it. I gave it to every member of my staff. I bought one for every member of my staff.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And it is important to have a ritual. Um, I'm my rituals are simple, uh, again, because I have the stillness of the morning. I have my own study. Right. Now I, I didn't have this, this room until recently um you know i closed my physical office at the end of last year and um, was at the dining room table for a while <laughs> so now i have my own study and, and so, so have your own power spot
3: mm-hmm.
2: and absolutely um, and then yeah start a routine every day i think rituals very important twyla Tharp would do that that was her thing she had a very defined ritual mine's a little bit more uh, loose at the moment
3: mm-hmm.
2: because i have other things other uh, things I have to attend to, business things, et cetera. But, uh, I but I do, I, you know, I always do it in the same spot. And um, I try to do it early, early morning when I, mm. when I it's quiet. In fact, I didn't close the window and it's not been an issue. Some days you mm. get the mowers and the blowers out there, but I would imagine.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah. It's, yeah. it's, it's, it's interesting. Uh, you mentioned Twilight Tharp because I, uh, 20 years ago, I lived in New York city for four years, lower Manhattan to learn the book publishing trade that's how I, I just took the deep dive and spent three you know several years there learned it moved on but Twyla was a neighbor and um, wow. so I'd run into her once in a while on the street and I would talk to her about dance she's you know she's a very esteemed dancer and it it leads to something I love to talk about maybe you can elaborate on this it's really important I believe for writers to go cross art so what Talk to musicians, talk to dancers, talk mm-hmm. to cinematographers, because in Twyla's case, I noticed from talking with her about dance and stuff, my own writing became more rhythmic and almost flowing like a dance, um, and that's how I write now. But it just—it was just le- just listening to
2: her in the osmosis. She's a great influence. Yeah, her book, her book influenced me, and I had learned to in my professional practice as a landscape architect, learn to be creative. My entire adult life. Um, but I still learn things from that book. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Alexa, when you asked us the question about ritual, you know, mm-hmm. um, I had studied and taught yoga a long time ago in my early life. And I I feel that because of that, um, like I've learned to be able to focus very well. And I, you know, so when I get into a state, I try to focus my being mm-hmm. very
1: you know, very have oh, that laser focus, so to speak. Yeah. Yes. That I feel like um, a lot don't have and really just a lot of writers tend to succumb to distractions and whatnot. So you're able to kind of filter all that out, I suppose. So.
2: Right. But one of the other things discipline. I learned about the, the creative process, if you're writing mm-hmm. and you hit a block or something,
1: mm-hmm.
2: stop and come back 10 minutes. What I used to do, this is very interesting in, in designing projects where their are parks or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I would, you know, there's some very specific site constraints I would, uh, if I hit a block, I would mm. get up, walk away from the table. When I came back, I turned the drawing upside down, mm. just get a fresh new perspective. And anything you can do like that in writing, you know, that it just gives you a whole new point of view. Is it, like, you know, again, it's a great way to um, to, to to take a yeah. new viewpoint
1: mm-hmm. yeah. kind of yeah bridge the gap between the two. That's interesting.
2: Yeah.
0: Well right. well, believe we... it or not, we are out of time. You were gonna say it, I'll beat you to it. <laughs> I went by and hard.
1: You beat me to it, Bob. I was
0: it did all the I, time. I thought, well but I, I I loved I loved your comments about yoga because I'm a fellow yogi and, and that's <laughs> how I that's how I start my day. I meditate, you know. It works every time on focus. So um, anyways, we're out of time, but once again. David Reed's book, uphill mm-hmm. and Into the Wind, is available on Amazon. It's available at, at several at select bookstores throughout Southern California. Yes. And probably going to expand from there to, uh, based on how good it is. And also on other online booksellers. It's published by Acorn Publishing.
2: And it's doing really well from what I can tell. Yeah, I'm thrilled with the response. It's also available at Barnes & Noble now, which yes. is great. I want to keep making inroads uh into that as well yeah okay well david
0: it's been a joy and a pleasure to have you on especially since i was honored and privileged to be there at kind of an early stage of your of your book writing journey and uh you know and with the southern california writers conference you know that's coming up in irvine in Mm -hmm. mid-september and then the the big one in next february in san
2: diego Um, i'm certain i'll see you at one of those and uh, I hope to, and it's it's been such a, a a pleasure, but also a lot of fun for me. Yeah, I appreciate you taking the time. That's the main thing. Yeah. Well,
0: we we and we've loved having you on front page. Absolutely. Pass. And um,
3: thank you for joining thank us. You so, for-
0: thank you so much, and it's congratulations been fantastic. again. It's It's a wonderful book, beautifully written, uh, really provocative story, mm-hmm. and and um, gosh, in anything to do with uh, landscape,
2: I'm all in. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, can I can I give you a a, a spoiler if you will? Absolutely. Sure. Behind me, all the photographs. Aha. Uh-huh. Uh, in the book, there are little eyeball icons, and I have they they're all connected to a. Uh, there's a QR code in the back of the book where they they can all be seen in color on my website. The center folds ah. are black and white, and there's only a few of them, but all the pictures are on the website.
1: Just so, keep that in
0: mind.
2: Yeah. Fantastic. <laughs> okay. That was um, awesome. and-
0: all right, thanks again
2: David and it was thank a
0: pleasure. Thank you for coming on the my show. Pleasure. Look my forward pleasure. to seeing you soon. to thank
3: you. Take Hope care. Thank you. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye bye. Bye.